Looking forward to our time in God's Word today. Looking forward to what the Lord would have to teach us today from His Word. And looking forward to responding to His Word and in, in, uh, in praise and worship as we sing songs to bring glory to God um, after we hear from His Word. And I'm um, so just excited, and I hope that you are as well. Church family, I invite you to uh, open up in your copy of God's Word to the book of Psalm. The book of Psalm. Uh, excuse me. I got Psalm in front of me. Genesis. Sorry, y'all. I'm, li- I'm, I'm looking down at Psalm. I forgot to flip the page. And so I'm just reading what is in front of me. Genesis. Open up to Genesis, if you will. Y'all thought I was going crazy, and I think you're right. <laughs> Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 22 through 24 today. Genesis 3, 22 through 24, the title of our message is God's People Expelled. God's People Expelled. And if you're able to, as you find that in your copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to stand as we read from the Word of God. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the Word of God for His church today. You may be seated. God's people expelled. We've spent several weeks unpacking Genesis chapter 3 and what we call the fall of mankind. Whenever we speak about the fall, we're talking about that point in redemption history where mankind rebelled against the God who made them. This fall of mankind. God created a good and perfect world, but humans, let's just put it this way, wrecked it. We wrecked God's good and perfect world. Humans gave in to the deceitful temptation of the serpent who hated them, and they rebelled against the God who loved them. We've seen in Genesis chapter 3, God's word get twisted. We've seen God's character get maligned. We've seen God's command get rejected. And we've seen the shame that sin brought into this world. We've seen the broken relationships that sin brought. And we've seen some of the consequences that sin brought. And we've also seen God continue to communicate with humanity. We've seen Him curse the serpent. We've seen Him promise a deliverer and to promise some sort of continued life which would lead to that promised deliverer. And so we've seen uh, the, the, the bad news of what happens when sin comes into the world, but as we talked about last week, we've seen these glimmers of hope even in the midst of the consequences of sin. But what kind of life would it be now? What kind of life would humanity be living? What kind of life was ahead for Adam and Eve? Didn't God promise, He had told them, that in the day they eat of the fruit, they would surely die. And yet, as we saw last week, they're going to continue to live, at least physically, for at least a time. 
what kind of life would it be? Well, all of these questions come to a head in the last three verses of Genesis chapter 3. And as I've said for weeks now, and I'm going to say it once more, I believe Genesis 3 should drive us to Jesus. Yes, when we think about Genesis chapter 3, we think about bad news. We think about the horror of sin. And that's really what Genesis 3 is a lot about. I mean, sin comes into God's good world and messes it up. And yet, when we think about sin, it should drive us to the only one who can rescue us from that sin. As we see the heartbreak of sin, we should be driven to Jesus to have our hearts mended. By way of reminder, I want to mention our main idea statements just from the past few weeks. We've seen this, that the reality of temptation should drive us to Jesus for divine rescue. We've seen that the ugliness of sin should drive us to Jesus for a beautiful salvation. And then last week we saw that the certainty of God's promise should drive us to Jesus for new life. Church family, I think today in this passage, we're going to see this, that the separation from God that we deserve should lead us to Jesus for the restoration that He provides. The separation from God we deserve should lead us to Jesus for the restoration that He provides. You've heard me say and you've seen from God's Word as we've studied Genesis chapter 3 that sin always leads to destruction. Sin always leads to destruction. No matter what temporary pleasures sin promises, and sin does promise and offer um, and can even provide temporary pleasures, but no matter those temporary pleasures that sin provides, sin always leads to destruction. When you think of the word sin, the word destruction should immediately come to your mind. But there's another word that I think should also come to your mind as soon as you think about the word sin. And that word is the word separate. Separate. You've probably heard me say this as well before, and I'm going to keep on saying it as long as the Lord lets words come out of my mouth. Sin always separates. Sin always separates. Sin brings destruction, and sin always separates. And we see the separation caused by sin all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Now from a zoomed out point of view, we'll dive into some details in a moment, but from a zoomed out point of view, our passage of Scripture um, here for today, it reveals that Adam and Eve, because of their sin, were basically kicked out of the garden. I mean, it's the picture that we have here of Adam and Eve being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And God's expulsion of them from the garden meant that they were separated from all that made the Garden of Eden what we often call paradise. Namely, that is, the fact that God's life-giving presence was there in the garden. So now they're separated from that. Because of their sin, God removed them from His presence. God separated them from Himself. And that is bad news for humans. Because separation from God means death for us. Separation from God means death for us. Now, let's zoom in and take a closer look at this very sad ending to Genesis chapter 3. Then we'll close by looking beyond Genesis chapter 3, and I think we'll see that a sorrow by the grace of God can be turned into joy. There are four truths I want us to see from this passage. The first one is this. Church, God's holiness demands that He respond to sin justly. God's holiness, that characteristic of who God is, His perfection, demands... 
that he respond to sin justly. Notice in verse 22 that God has this short dialogue with Himself. And what we're going to see, as we've seen already in Genesis 3, God's holiness will not allow Him to overlook sin and, uh, and, and to let it go ignored, and it demands that he, he must punish sin. Verse 22 says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. You know, the last time, this just just paints just the the horrible picture that sin uh, brings into the world. The last time we saw God um, dialoguing, speaking uh, with Himself was in chapter 1, verse 26. And you know what He said there? Let us make man in our image after our likeness. And now, because of sin, we see Him saying, Behold, man has sinned. Behold, man has sinned. And and we're going to have to do something about it. God's drawing our attention through the text to his keen awareness of the man's sin. Now, I mention this because we're going to see it throughout this passage in every verse, that, that he only mentions the man here, not the woman, because Adam was the one to whom the command was originally given. Adam was the leader of his wife, and he was the representative of the rest of humanity. And so that's why we see just the man being addressed here. But I want you to notice how God emphasizes the man's sin. He says, behold... That's the word that means pay attention to this. Pay attention to this. Pay attention to the fact that man has now become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Pay attention to the fact that man has sinned. God had said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. But then the serpent came along and said, you'll not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And now, in kind of an ironic way, God is saying that this is exactly what's happened. Because the man ate from this forbidden tree. I mean, the serpent said, if you eat of it, you're going you're to be like God. And now God is saying, man has become like, like one of us. And so we do learn, once again, something about the deceitfulness of the serpent. You see, just like he told them that their eyes would be opened, and when they ate, the text says, their eyes were opened, but it was a bad thing, not a good thing. That's where the deceitfulness comes in. It's kind of a half-truth. We see the same thing here. We see another of Satan's deceitful predictions coming true. The man is now, as Satan has said, like God and knowing good and evil, but unlike the way Satan portrayed it as this is going to be a good thing for you, this knowledge is a bad thing for humanity. It's not a good thing. Friends, I don't know exactly what Satan might be tempting you with today, but just know this, Satan may say some true things when he tempts us, but he is never truthful about the actual consequences of our sin. And so, we must see through his deceitfulness. Friends, God will notice our sin. And God must punish our sin. And it is right. It is just. That's why I use the word justly. It is right. It is just that God notice our sin and punish our sin because He is holy. We've already seen some of the punishments for sin in chapter 3. Pain and strife and toil and a cursed ground. But there's more. 
Remember back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, we learned that God not only placed within the garden this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, but he also placed within the garden this tree called the tree of life. This tree of life. And the only tree he told them not to eat from was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which means they could eat from the tree of life. But now, but now, because of their sin, God prepares to prevent them from eating from the tree of life. The just punishment for their sin is death. And that truth remains consistent all throughout the pages of Scripture. The just punishment for their sin is death. They should have lived forever. They should have been able to eat from that tree of life forever. But now, no. Now they're being cut off from it. God in effect says, behold, man has now sinned. Now he must be punished. And yet perhaps even in God's act of justice, this is where we keep seeing these glimmers of hope, even in God's act of justice, we also see an act of mercy, I think. Perhaps God is not only rightly taking life from them, but graciously preventing them from living forever in a cursed world. Perhaps he is even going to take an eternally cursed life from them. Because that's what's going to happen. They eat from the tree of life, but they're cursed. They're going to have an eternally cursed life. He's taking that life away from them, perhaps so that he can one day give them an eternally blessed life. You say, well, would God do that? I mean, could God do that? We've just said that His holiness demands that He punish sin. Could God act in such a way that He shows mercy while also remaining completely just? Could He do that? The answer is absolutely, church. Absolutely. Just look at the cross of Christ and you'll see God's justice and His mercy being poured out in the very same act. Praise God that even as God vindicates His holiness, He also validates His love for mankind. But the cross is still many years away from this point in history. Adam and Eve are being kicked out of the garden and God's just punishment for sin is highlighted. Just punishment is to be separated. Separated from God. Second truth I want to share with you is this. God's removal to our, or excuse me, response to our rejection of him is removal, removal from his life-giving presence. God's response to our rejection of him is removal from his life-giving presence. I want you to notice here as we as we move into this next verse, it's not just it's not just that they're 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 not going to have the the good food in the Garden of Eden and the good water in the Garden of Eden. This is a removal from the presence of God, His life-giving presence. Friends, we must realize what we are giving up when we sin. Sin is a rejection of God, and so a rejection of God is met with a removal from God's presence. And this is bad, again, because God is the author of life. Satan's going to promise a better life through sin, but we have to remember that God is the author of life. And when we reject God, we are rejecting life. And so God takes from us what we, through choosing to sin, have chosen to reject, namely His life-giving presence. The text says this in verse 23 and and then into verse 24, Therefore the Lord God sent Him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which He was taken. He drove out the man. 
It's bad news. It's horrible news. Not only because life was easier, easier in the garden, but because God was there in the garden. Now, Scripture clearly teaches the omnipresence of God. That truth that God is everywhere all the time. But in the garden, it wasn't just that God was there in the sense that He's everywhere. It was that God was there dwelling in perfect relationship with humanity. In the garden, there were no barriers between God and humanity, which means man had the privilege of enjoying, note this, unhindered access to the life-giving presence of God. There was no, in the beginning, there was nothing that was in between God and man. Man could stand between God without one bit of shame separating him from the holy God. But not anymore. God removed Adam and Eve from his life-giving presence. In chapter 2, verse 8, we saw that God put the man in the garden that he had made. But now, as a result of sin, we see God send out and drive out the man from the garden. The man had everything he needed to enjoy eternal life with God, but he chose to reject God. And God responds to our rejection of life with Him by punishing us to life without Him. Notice that verse 23 says that the man was sent out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. So notice this. God God is not striking him down physically in this moment. He's not, because he's going to go out of the garden and he's going to work the ground. He's going to try to make food come up from the ground. But in kicking him out of the garden, what God is doing is sentencing Adam to what one theologian called a living death. It is a living death that God is sentencing Adam to. Now one day he is going to die physically, but there was a death that happened as Adam stepped out of the garden. Yes, Adam continued to breathe. His heart continued to beat. But in a very real way, he crossed over from life into death as he stepped out of the garden. Please hear this. Sin always separates. It separates us from God. And that's the worst thing for any human. The worst problem in any human's life, apart from the grace of God, rescuing them from this problem, is that they are separated from God. Because separation from God means we have no hope of eternal life. This is is a horrible thing. Jesus said that the very definition of eternal life is to know God. That's what it means to have everlasting life, is to know God. And by know Him, He didn't just mean know some facts about Him. He means to have fellowship with God. But when that fellowship has been broken, eternal life has been forfeited. Adam kept living in a way as he walked out of the garden, but he was a walking dead man as he walked out of the garden. And this is exactly how the Apostle Paul described every single person who has not been rescued by the grace of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And you were dead. Note how strong that language is. Paul's not saying that the Ephesians whom he's writing to were at one point physically dead, but now are physically alive. He is saying that they were spiritually dead, even though they were physically alive. I wonder if there's anyone here today who would fall into that same category. You're physically alive, but because of sin, 
and a lack of relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you're spiritually dead. Paul goes on to say in that passage in Ephesians that in their spiritual deadness, they were objects of God's wrath. Objects of God's wrath. You see how horrible it was for Adam and therefore the rest of humanity to be expelled from the garden. The removal from the garden doesn't merely reveal that we have gone from good to bad. It reveals that we have gone from life to death. To be separated from God means death. To be separated from God means we are the rightful recipients of eternal wrath. Objects of God's wrath, Paul says, to those who are spiritually dead. Church family, it gets worse than that. It gets worse than just what we see right here. Right, right, right here at this point, knowing that Adam's being kicked out of the garden. Because God doesn't just drive Adam from his presence. God actively prevents Adam from ever entering his presence again. Truth number three. God's active prevention of sinners entering his presence makes any human attempt at reconciliation foolish. God's active, active, we're going to see, see why, why we're using this word active in a moment. God's active prevention of sinners entering his presence makes any human attempt at reconciliation foolish. I know that's a mouthful, but it's an extremely important point for us to understand. And what do I mean by reconciliation? I mean the healing of the relationship between God and humanity. When, you, when, 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 some, when, there, when there needs to be reconciliation, it means that a relationship has been, it's been broken. And there needs to be a healing there so that those two whose relationship have been broken can come back together as one. Our relationship with God is broken. There's no peace between God and sinners. And we may try, and we often do try, to fix to heal that relationship. But God's active prevention of sinners entering His presence makes any human attempt at reconciliation foolish. Look at verse 24. I want you to notice here the detailed description of the action that God takes. And then, the, and then we'll look at the purpose of the action. Verse 24 says, He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. What action does God take here? Well, several. First, He drives out the man. Listen, this isn't God just walking Adam to the door and saying, have a nice day. This is an active, forceful removal of Him from the garden. Secondly, we see that He places cherubim at the entrance to the garden. We'll talk a little bit more about cherubim in a moment, but for now, just know that, that these, are, these are some sort of angelic creatures which pop up a few different places throughout Scripture, and they, they represent and they guard the presence of God. That's where we see them. We don't see the cherubim like delivering messages, like say the angel Gabriel is a messenger delivering messages. We don't see the, the cherubim doing that. They are always where the presence of God is, and they are guarding the presence of God. And... <laughs> These are cherubim. This isn't just your average bodyguard, okay? These are God's cherubim. But third, we see that He equips the cherubim with a weapon. He doesn't just place cherubim there, but He gives them a weapon. They aren't just standing there with their arms crossed, making empty threats. Well, you, you try to come in. I'm going to do so-and-so, so, but they don't really have any power behind them. No, 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 no. 
They have a weapon to actually strike down anyone who attempts to enter the garden. And remember, the garden there is the presence of God. It's not just any weapon, though. He equips them with a deadly weapon. It's a flaming sword. They don't just have a flame, and they don't just have a sword. They have a flaming sword. Listen, this flaming sword is not just there for looks. Because fifth, we see that this flaming sword that he's equipped the cherubim with is turning every way. It's moving. It's turning. It's not just there for looks. It's not just meant to be a scare tactic. It's not hidden away in a sheath. It is out and it is turning constantly every which way. What's the point? God is actively preventing sinners from ever entering His presence. That's God's action. What's the purpose? To guard this way to the tree of life. It says, the text says, to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, God has taken very significant steps to prevent anyone from ever entering His life-giving presence. You see what I mean by it gets worse. It's not just that we get kicked out of the presence of God. It's that we can't do anything in and of ourselves to get back into the presence of God. Humanity is not just asked to leave, but driven from God's presence with no possible human way to ever enter back in. Why? Because God is holy and we are sinful. And we can try and try and try, but we will never be able to do anything on our own to reconcile our relationship with God. We can try to do good things. We can kind of apologize for our sin. We can form religious systems and religious organizations and have our checklist of things that we think will make God happy with us. But there is a divinely engineered barrier between sinful humanity and the holiness of God that no mere human can ever overcome. And having seen the consequence of sin, really this makes sense. What did we just say about verse 23? What did we just read in the book of Ephesians? That Adam died spiritually as he stepped out of the garden. Remember Paul said, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Friend, what can a dead person do to give himself new life? Nothing. Nothing. I'll say it again. Getting expelled from the presence of God doesn't mean we've merely just gone from good to bad, it means we've gone from life to death. From being alive to being dead before God. Which means we don't just need to clean up our act to try to do some more good things to make up for the bad things that we've done. It means we need to be made alive. We need to be raised from the dead. And a dead person can never raise themselves to new life. Not any mere human. Which means, left to ourselves, we are helpless and hopeless because a dead man can do nothing to give himself the new life that he needs. Any attempt, that is a human attempt, any attempt based on human effort to enter the life-giving presence of God will ultimately fail because God is actively guarding His holiness. Friend, God's active prevention of sinners entering His presence makes any human attempt at reconciliation foolish. It's kind of like a small child walking up to a fortified castle wall and just running into it over and over and over thinking that He's going to cross that, cross that wall. He's going to break it down. 
He's going to get to the other side. It's never going to happen. And it's foolish to sit there and watch him try. That, that person, the person who tries to over and over and over fix their relationship with God on their own, it's not only going to wind up frustrated and defeated, but according to this passage, will be struck down. Don't forget the flaming sword. And we see this theme of human sin continue throughout Genesis as humans go east. Now this, this, is, some, this is something we may read over really quickly, but when we read this passage in light of the, the continuing pages of Genesis... This word east is actually important. We see this theme of human sin continue throughout Genesis as humans go east in their sin. Here, Adam has driven out the eastern entrance to the garden. So he's going east. He's driven out the eastern entrance. In chapter 4, verse 16, we read that Cain, who represents the continuation of evil, went away, quote, went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. So Cain, continuing in sin, goes further east. And then in chapter 11, verse 2, we learn that the people who rebelled against God by trying to make a name for themselves through the construction of a great tower, we know it as the Tower of Babel, they were people who were from the east. And then in chapter 13, verses 18, uh, 8 through 13, we learn that Abraham's nephew Lot chose to journey, guess which direction? East. And to settle there. And the text tells us that the men of that place were, quote, wicked great sinners of the Lord. And if you know the story of Lot, and we'll get there at some point in our study of Genesis, this choice to go east did not turn out well for Lot and his family. But we not only see humans traveling east in their sin as we scan the pages of Scripture and as we dive into God's Word. Church family, we also see God providing a way for sinners to turn around and enter back into His presence. But the way back is not based on human effort. The way back is based upon divine grace and sacrificial blood. Divine, not human, divine grace and sacrificial blood. The last truth that I want to share with you, church, is the good news. We've gone from, from not so good to bad to really bad. But church, there's good news. There's always good news with the God that we serve. Yes, God in His holiness actively prevents sinners from entering His presence, but God in His love actively opens a way for sinners to be restored, for our fellowship with God to be reconciled, for the dead to be made alive. Truth number four today is this. God's active love for sinners has opened up a way for us to be restored back into His life-giving presence. God's active love, His active love for sinners has opened up a way for us to be restored back into His life-giving presence. This picture of man being driven from the presence of God and cherubim guarding the way back into the presence of God with certain death for any sinner who tries to enter back into God's presence. Actually, this picture, this horrible picture, actually sets up one of the great themes of the great storyline of God's Word. For even though God has driven simple humanity from His presence, church, He has not forsaken them. He has not turned His back on them. 
If we fast forward to the book of Exodus, we see God, jump ahead to the book of Exodus, we see God having delivered His chosen people through whom the promised Son of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 would be born, having delivered this people out of the slavery, their slavery in Egypt, we see God setting up a way for them to enter His presence. Or at least we should clarify that and say at least one of them entering His presence one time a year on behalf of the rest. In Exodus, we read about God's instructions for the building of the tabernacle, which were later used for the building of the temple there in Jerusalem. Now, there was an inner room in the tabernacle and then later in the temple that was called the Most Holy Place. Maybe you've heard it called the Holy of Holies. The Most Holy Place. And there in the Most Holy Place was the Ark of God, on top of which this thing called the Mercy Seat set. And God told the people of Israel that once a year, the high priest could enter through the entrance of the Most Holy Place, which, by the way, faced east. Entrance to the most holy place faced east so they could head back into the direction of the garden, if you will, into the presence of God. That's no small coincidence that this door faced east, but evidence of God's sovereignty in His divinely orchestrated plan of redemption. And so the priest would walk uh, walk from the east westward into the most holy place into the presence of God. But guess what else was in the most holy place? Not just the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat on top, but constructed on either end of the mercy seat which sat on top of the Ark of the Covenant where God said He would meet with His people were two golden cherubim. Two golden cherubim. Symbols of the holy presence of God. God said this in Exodus chapter 25, verse 22. He said, There I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you. But church, there's even more. Don't lose sight of Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. Don't lose sight of that picture, right? Cherubim, guarding the entrance to the presence of God. In the next chapter in Exodus, we learn that there was to be a veil, a curtain, hanging down over the entrance to the most holy place. And guess what was to be embroidered on that veil, on that curtain? Cherubim. Cherubim. And what was the purpose of the curtain? Church family, it wasn't for decoration. It was for separation. The purpose of the veil was for separation. Its purpose was to separate. A visual separation to separate sinful humanity from the holy presence of God. When the people would see that veil, they didn't go, wow, what a beautiful veil. They went, oh, because of my sin, I cannot enter into the presence of God. Listen to the instructions found in Exodus chapter 26, verse 31 through 34. And you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it, and you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver, and you shall hang the veil from the clasp and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil, notice the words, this is the Word of God, the veil shall separate for you 
the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. Church, do you see the connection? When Moses wrote the book of Genesis, God was providing a written revelation to His people of the beginning of what they experience every day in a very visual symbolism. And that is separation from God because of their sin. They were barred from the presence of God by cherubim on a curtain as Adam was barred from the presence of God by cherubim with a flaming sword. And even though the cherubim in the temple were made out of thread, so perhaps they seem less threatening, church family, we can read throughout the pages of Scripture and know that anyone who entered the most holy place without divine authorization met the same fate Adam would have met if he had tried to run back into the Garden of Eden, and that is death. Sin, all, sin is always struck down in the presence of God. But the temple was not merely there to prevent people from entering God's presence, but it was there to allow people to enter God's presence. To allow sinners access to God's presence. Remember the high priest, he was allowed in behind the curtain once every year. The question then is, how could he enter through the cherubim guarding the entrance to the presence of God? How could he enter in? If sin is always struck down in the presence of God, because these priests were sinners too. Well, there was only one way. He could enter through the curtain only by way of a blood sacrifice. He could enter in only if his sins had been atoned for by the blood of an innocent substitute sacrifice. God's holiness must be vindicated. God's wrath towards sin must be satisfied. Sin must be struck down. But God in His mercy allowed a sinner to enter as though he was righteous if he brought with him the blood of an innocent one who had been struck down in his place. Sacrificial blood was the only way that the priest would not be struck down. Earlier I said, I said, but wait, it gets way worse. Church family, now I want to say, but wait, it gets way better. Way better than even this priest entering in behind the curtain. For a couple thousand years ago, the promised son of Genesis 3.15 was born. And he was a man like us, except that he was also fully God not like us. And he attempted to cross the divide which stood between humanity and God. And because he was not just a man, but also fully God, it wasn't merely a human attempt at reconciliation which stemmed from human foolishness and would have proved unsuccessful. It was a divine attempt at reconciliation which stemmed from and was the fulfillment of divine wisdom and which proved successful in every way. You see, when Jesus died upon the cross, He was dying as the sacrificial Lamb of God, slain, Scripture says, before the foundation of the world. When Jesus died on the cross, Scripture tells us that that curtain there in the temple in Jerusalem was torn in two, Scripture says, from top to bottom. And what did that mean? It meant that the separation which had existed between God and humanity ever since Adam had been expelled from the garden had now been destroyed for all who would enter God's presence having been washed clean in the blood of Jesus, our forever, once and for all, substitute sacrifice. 
You see, God's holiness, church, will not allow sin to go unpunished. The flaming sword of the cherubim must strike down all sin, but God's love will not let His people stay separated. God's love will not let His people stay separated from Him. And so God placed our sin upon His righteous Son. And in the greatest display of holiness and love, He struck down His Son instead of us. And when He did, a way was opened for people who are dead in sin to be made alive in Christ and who enter into the life-giving presence of God forever and ever. Jesus promised everlasting life to all who would believe in Him. To all who stop trying to get to God through human effort, but who rather trust in God's divine work to rescue them from their sin. And I'm so thankful that Scripture gives us a glimpse in the book of Revelation of this everlasting life as it paints for us a picture of the place called the new heavens and the new earth, which is the final destination for all who belong to Jesus. And we read God's description of this place, we find these words. Now, as I read, don't forget about the Garden of Eden. Revelation chapter 21 Verse 1 through 3, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, which is a symbol for the people of God, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This is what makes heaven awesome. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be His people. And God Himself will be with them as their God. And then we can jump ahead to Revelation chapter 22, verse 1 and 2, when we find these words. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves were, uh, of the tree were for the healing, think about that broken relationship, healing of the nations. You see what's happening in the Garden of Eden? God was kicking man out of His presence so that he would not be able to eat from the tree of life and live forever in his sin. But God was also working out His plan to send His Son to rescue sinners from their sin and open up a way for them to be restored back into His life-giving presence where we would be without sin. And being without sin, we could then eat from the tree of life and live forever in a sinless state of perfection as we worship the Lamb on the throne whose nail-scarred hands and feet would forever and ever be a constant reminder of the holiness of God in striking down sin and the love of God in striking down His Son instead of us. Will you be there? Will you be there? Have you entered the presence of God through the torn curtain? Have you been washed by the blood of Jesus? Have you received the free gift of salvation by believing in Jesus Christ alone? Friends, you cannot save yourself. You cannot enter God's presence through your own effort. Jesus tells us there's going to be a lot of people on that day when He comes back. Standing before Him, 
that have spent their lives trying to get back to Him. Not denying His existence, but saying, I want to get back to God, but they've been trying to do it on their own, and He's going to say, depart from Me, for I never knew you. You cannot save yourself, but Jesus can save you. You can enter God's presence through the blood of Jesus. So would you believe in Jesus Christ today? The church family, if you believed in Jesus for salvation, will you live for His glory? Would I live for His glory in every area of my life? And would we tell someone else this good news that Jesus has made a way for sinners to be saved, for the spiritually dead to be made spiritually alive? Will we live for His glory and will we share this good news with others? I want to close by reading three verses of Scripture. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 How are those two verses possible? Because for our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank You for Jesus. Lord, the only way we can enter into Your presence is if we enter in righteousness. But God, we have zero righteousness in and of ourselves. God, You tell us that no one is righteous. No, not one. You tell us that even our righteous deeds, which we think are righteous, are like filthy rags before You. And so how is it, God, that we can enter into Your presence in righteousness? God, it is only if we are clothed with the righteousness of Jesus. And God, how is it that we could be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus? God, it is because You being rich in love, great in mercy, sent Your Son to be clothed with our sin and to open up a way for us to be made righteous in Your sight. Heavenly Father, I pray that there's anyone here who has never believed in Jesus for salvation. God, I pray that today they would lay aside all their own human effort. And God, they would turn and just throw themselves upon Your mercy and ask You to save them through the blood of Jesus Christ and nothing else. And God, for those of us who have believed in Jesus, God, I pray that we would live for the glory of Christ. I pray that we would share the good news of Christ with others. God, I pray that we would devote our lives to serving King Jesus. And Father, even even now here in this place, that we would lift up our voices with hearts overflowing with joy for who Jesus is and what He has done for us. Thank You for Jesus. Thank You for the blood of Christ. Thank You for the cross. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.